Welcome back, folks, to the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. In today's show, we have our friend, an old friend, Adam Lillian, Greg, along with Brian Steverson from the GSA. So we got the Adam from the UL and Brian from the GSA, and we're talking health effects. Come on, man. Can't get any better than that. Oh, that was a mind blower, actually. I, You know, I, I that podcast, Adam Lillian's told me a couple times, and every time I always leave, Adam in doubts. I don't think I doubt anymore. I think they almost have it all figured. Well, they've almost started to have it all figured out. Does that make sense? Almost started. Yeah. I would say that's a, that's a fair analogy for sure. You know, so, but before you do that, remember the original and focus. That's right. They're ready to go right now. You don't have to wait. You go to energyfocus.com. That's E-N-E-R-G-Y-F-O-C-U-S.com, Greg. That's right. And on the topic we talk about today, this is a, and they, they put it right there. It says retrofitable and affordable human centric lighting. And affordable is a key word. You know, that their program, their system is the most affordable human centric lighting there is. I know the word might not be the one you want to use, Mike, the human centric, but we're going to use it because it's there. And they have 10 stage dimming and color tuning capabilities. And no, I, I think this tube. is, I think this product is human centric lighting and that's okay. Because they're okay. not we're, they're we're not wrong. talking about anything else, you know. What they're talking about is a really low co- low cost, high value product that you can retrofit in that can help humans today. That's what they're saying. That's what Adam's going to tell you right now on the podcast from UL, and Brian is going to tell you. And and Focus has a product that can is a product that can help with that right now, Greg Eric. That's right. Most affordable way out there, easy to do. Type B, bypass balance, everything built in. Use your existing fixture. It's easy. And of course, the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. You go to NAILD.org. I don't have my hat today. It's around. You know why I don't have my hat? Because I wear it a lot. Go to NAIL.org for right now. Ryan Steverson, Adam Million on the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Welcome to the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Welcome back, Adam Million. And also, welcome, Brian Steverson for coming on thanks for coming on the show thanks for having me hey greg to be back. yeah it's good to have you back man hey greg we've spoken to adam in a, a lot of times and when i said mm-hmm. you know before we started recording i said let's elevate our consciousness the reason why i said that because it always seems to happen when we speak to adam and yeah. that means there's big expectations for you brian why don't, why don't you fire this thing up greg and get everything going here for the listeners well why are we talking to both of you how about that I think um, uh, both UL and GSA are becoming more um, instrumental in the shift from the pure science of circadian health and lighting and what actually happens in in buildings. Uh, Brian, you want to add to that? Sure. So GSA is um, just a little bit about what GSA, who GSA is and what we do. Um, we're one of those agencies that you don't really hear much about, uh, which is good. Uh, we're typically out of the news. Uh, we're a behind-the-scenes agency. Really, we're there to support other agencies in completing their missions. One of the big things that GSA provides are uh, workspaces for federal employees. So we own, operate, and lease federal buildings. Um, and part of the conversation we've been having at GSA for the past five years or so is we know that buildings have um, you know, a lot of risks involved in them, especially the older buildings with asbestos and mold and lead paints, things like that. But can buildings also be a place that can promote health and well-being for people that work in them? Watch um, it. Because we all Watch spend it. so much time in, uh, in buildings. Um, now, this is obviously pre-COVID. Um, but uh, I think for GSA standpoint, we are really exploring ways that um, when you're at work, uh, for the amount of time that we're all at work, is there a way that we can actually come out on the better end of this from a health perspective? And so that's where the lighting aspect has come into play. It's a big goal and um, it's a moonshot actually, um, the way I see it. So what do we know? I've talked to a lot of health experts, Greg and I have, you know, kind of been on the circuit with Adam and going around at different shows before COVID and then also, you know, speaking to them on a regular basis. What I can say as a light bulb salesman, that's definitive right now that I've learned is that number one, humans are not nocturnal. Okay. So we need to be, we should be awake during the day and asleep at night. And there's a big difference between sunlight and electric light. And 
um, the third thing that, you know, I, I've asked a couple times, but, you know, are sunglasses bad for you or good for you? And so, you know, is sunscreen bad for you or good for you? Should we actually be blocking the sun's rays when we're outside? Or is there something happening that we're getting from the sun that is super important for our health and well-being? So I know those things. And the final, uh, the final kind of caveat that I kind of tack on to that when I'm, when I'm, when I'm, when I'm speaking is that, uh, you know, the idea of promoting human health is new. But the ability to hurt people with lighting is very old. And so we've done a lot of harm with flicker. I mean, nobody knows it better than casinos, Adam Lillian, that if you shine 5,000K vertically directly into someone's eyes, they'll give you their paycheck, right? So we, we know that, right? We know that we can do these things. Adam, what is it that we can do is do you have definitive actual product level on the street evidence that we can do things that will actually improve human health outcomes with, with electric light. Yes. Son of a gun. <laughs> <laughs> the good news. Yes. <laughs> the good news is that um, uh, we've, we've simplified it to more light during the day and less light during the night um, and getting it right means um, uh, easier, uh, falling to sleep, uh, deeper sleep, uh, better um, immune system regeneration, uh, better ability to fight off uh, illnesses, uh, lower cases of depression, diabetes, and and even potential for uh, long-term cancer reduction. Um, and that's been that's the science. So that's that's uh, unequivocal. And I think where where the lighting industry you mentioned a moonshot earlier. I think. Um, I think we have to acknowledge where the lighting industry has been, which is that over, for over a hundred um, years, uh, we we believe that um, it's it's sufficient to just uh, light for tasks, uh, so we can have this conversation. Otherwise, um, uh, we might all be in the dark. Um, and and the and the science is is solid. I think what's really interesting is that with GSA stepping in, and with with the uh, pandemic. Uh, putting a question in all of our minds, what's going to happen to office spaces when we do come back? Um, I think that's a good place to, to turn the corner on this conversation. So Brian, GSA, what does that stand for? GSA stands for the General Services Administration. Okay. And, and you guys are only dealing with federal offices. Explain again the background of what you guys do. Yeah. So, right. One of the many things that GSA does in, um, in addition to um, supply schedules, but it's uh, federal office buildings. So courthouses, warehouses, um, land ports of entry. So when you enter the country, you have to go through different security measures. Typically, a lot of those buildings are GSA owned or managed buildings. Uh, we, we're not, uh, we do lease buildings, um, actually about 50% of our inventory is lease space from the private sector as well. Okay. And you guys are actively upgrading lighting in all of these facilities or some of them, or how are you deciding what to do and what are you doing? So for GSA, um, the last six years or so, we've been working with the Lighting Research Center to really take a look at and gather empirical evidence to see how lighting can impact people's sleep quality at night and their um, performance during the day, looking at alertness and vitality. Um, we're sort of in that next step now where we're starting to pilot um, different uh, systems um, in some, some of our buildings, looking at ways that we can um, uh, promote, uh, you know, better alertness during the day. Um, we're still sort of in the stages of uh, incorporating what we have learned into our um, design guidelines as an agency. Um, into our performance specs as an agency. Um, the hope is, is once we can um, better get some of these things into what we do on a daily basis, that we can really move out um, when we do lighting projects and have the other seat at the table looking at lighting, not as just a way to put lumens on a desktop, but also as a way to really help people perform while they're at work. Now, you mentioned you guys are having the Lighting Research Center do testing for you. Um, how are they, what are the tests? What do they consist of? Are you active with that or you just know they're doing something? No, yeah, we, we, so we, we, uh, my office, the office of federal high performance buildings, uh, which is in one part of GSA, um, we, we actually, uh, 
collaborated with collaborated with them for um, five years. We, we've done uh, studies both in summer and winter time, looking at ten GSA buildings um, across the country, um, including uh, a VA medical center up in Vermont, um, some U.S. embassies overseas. Um, asking people um, if they're interested to wear a light meter uh, while they're at work and also take part in several um, psychological surveys that measure sleep quality, that measure vitality, that measure stress and mood um, several times a day over a, a set period of time, whether it's a week or three weeks, really just to see how the lighting in their space impacts them and also really to see what seasonal changes are taking place too, because um, things are different in the spring than the wintertime. Geography plays a big part of that too. Um, looking at places in Northern Europe that only get four hours or six hours of daylight a year, how does that impact their sleep and what additional what would additional lighting in their workspace uh, help to improve that? So you said, how do they wear a light meter? Well, out of curiosity. So it's a, it's a light meter that the Lighting Research Center calls a decimeter, but you put it on a lanyard. It's about the size of, um, I just say, half of a cell phone, half of an iPhone. So it's very, it's very small, but it just hangs right here, sort of in the middle of your chest, very out of the way. Um, and uh, I took part in two of those studies that were in Washington, D.C. Just out of experience, they really weren't cumbersome at all. And it's just a good way to see how much light you're getting throughout the day. Honestly, for me, it was very informative. I don't get a lot of light. So you were measuring light levels, but not necessarily getting into color temperature? Correct. Just light levels. Correct. Okay. And is that something that is going to be considered down the road, or do you guys not even really factor in color temperature in this whole argument? Well, I think, uh, you know, for us, it really was just how much lighting we were getting. Um, the decimeter that the Lighting Research Center developed, and, and they know all the information about that, um, so I can't really speak too closely to it, but it does measure the amount of circadian effective lighting that somebody would get. So it would incorporate just all spectrum that you're being exposed to throughout the day. So as an agency, we're not necessarily concerned about how much short wavelength or long wavelength light we're getting. Obviously, at night, we want to stay away from the, the blue light. And we're trying to um, make people aware of that sort of as an educational effort. You know, GSA provides workspace during the day, but if you go home and you're up at night till midnight looking at your iPhone, you know, this close to your face, you're really going to undo everything that's been done during the day. So um, for us, we, we're right now, what we have been doing is really gathering just how much light is somebody exposed to, whether it's from electric light or whether it's from daylighting. Adam, you were the architect of UL24480. Um, the design guideline. And I think you started talking to us about it about a year and a half ago. And what are the fundamental, I remember when the IES came out for Dark Sky, I actually want to talk to you a little bit about that as well later on in the show, but um, you know, they came up with the five principles of responsible outdoor lighting, right? Is there something you can break it down for, for the listeners that, um, you know, simplicity, simpli uh, I mean, all the research, lighting research center says more light at night during the day and less light during the night, right? This is kind of like yeah. some basics to get, because you don't want to get too complicated, right? Is there some basic principles that you can lay out for us that, that um, kind of summarize the uh, design guideline? Yeah. And just to clarify something first, I was a member of the, of the uh, you know, task force, uh, that Brian was also on, um, that was chaired by Mark Ray of the okay. Lighting Research Center, and um, the, yeah, the 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 results of the of the task force, which met for two years and um, dis and voted to publish um, in December of 2019, uh, uh, broke it down this way: if we can deliver uh, the right amount of light during the day and reduce uh, to a maximum the amount of light during the evening. Uh, will have these uh, uh, these impacts to the human body that the empirical studies uh, prove out, and the the minimum threshold that was determined to be effective is is um, termed a, a circadian stimulus, uh, which is a measurement uh, cir circadian stimulus of 0 0.3 uh, during the day, and a, which is a minimum, and a maximum of 0 0.1. Uh, during the uh, early hours of the evening, and that ties to that ties to um, uh, studies that have shown that by 
by achieving this uh, will 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 start to offset uh, the impact of being indoors under artificial light, uh, which many of us are uh, during the day, and will it will will result in in deeper sleep, faster sleep, uh, going to sleep a little bit early, it, it re really entrainment, which is which is a synchronization up to our to the to the daytime and to the nighttime for where we're living on the planet. Okay, so. Um... The I don't know how to ask this the right way. So, is that light vertically coming at you? Is it horizontally coming at you? Is it all of it? Like, how does it? How do you have to be experiencing this light in order to maximize the effect? Well, that, that's a great question. In fact, it's kind of funny you mentioned experiencing it. Uh, we're actually talking about non-visual uh, light here. Um, so it's 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 experienced, but not not in the in the typical five senses that we're mm -hmm. that we're used to talking about so the the horizontal vertical uh, 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 issue that you're bringing up is, is really interesting so for the past hundred years we've been designing so that the light that hits the horizontal work plane is evenly lit and we talk about contrast ratios and 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 uh, minimal uh, lux levels and there's a ton of of um, of of ways to look at that uh, the the new way of looking at light is to look at what is hitting the vertical plane of our cornea such that it hits the uh, ganglion cells uh, that are in the back of our eye about right about here um, uh, so it's blocked by the forehead it's changed by the bridge of the nose left to right eye uh, sees a little bit differently and the science is clear enough then we know that it's a it's a it's a large the largest issue is volume, so it's the amount of volume that's hitting uh, <clears throat> the back of our of our eyes, and and less uh, about the horizontal surface. So as long as we as long as we continue what we've been doing to take care of the horizontal surface, uh, which we're not going to go away from. You know, it, I don't I don't think you could change that if you wanted to, but we started to address um, the vertical plane of the eye, which for overhead lighting straight overhead, I'm not going to get I'm not going to get much to the back of the eyeball. I have a forehead; it's coming straight down. Um, it's perhaps the light that's in front of me that's coming towards me uh, that's going to have more effect on that. So, so when we look at overhead lighting, uh, <clears throat> there's a natural challenge to how much how much that's going to impact, uh, unless we're doing something like shifting to uh, uh, a pendant and perhaps an indirect pendant. And I had some challenges when I first started to hear that an indirect pendant was going to be more was going to be more impactful to uh, to our circadian stimulus until I until you start to look at the math of of how light is delivered from an a, 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 a indirect pendant, where you've got the if you're looking at it horizontally, you're doing a cross section, the light is going up towards the ceiling and then it's reflecting down. And it's that reflection down that's going to start to have a better chance to hit the back of my eyeball. Um, but it might not be enough to just uh, account for overhead lighting. We might start to use wall washes. We might start to take into account the reflectiveness of the wall covering. And we might start to use desk lamps. And Brian was, was instrumental uh, in his studies um, at GSA with, with desk lamps. And, we've, and, and I, I, I think that that's one of the areas that we'll start to see um, some progress in over this next decade is people using desk lamps. But Brian, could you comment on on what you learned about desk lamps and, and the ability to localize the impact of, of circadian stimulus? Yeah. So one thing that we were noticing throughout our, our work was that, you know, people are very mobile when they're at work, right? We tend to go to different meetings. We tend to get up to go talk to somebody or use a restroom or whatever. But when we're sitting in one spot, normally it's at our desk, and usually we're facing our computer. Uh, so what we were able to do was, was in-house build some um, lights that would basically shine right at the person as they're uh, working on their computer. So we placed those, um, and over time they kind of changed from something that was above your monitor to something that was below. Um, and really we're able to show that um, that tended to really give people a lot of light if, if they were working in areas that didn't have a lot of daylighting coming in. Electrical lighting was actually really helpful in making sure that, as Adam was saying, that we had that people were receiving a circadian stimulus of over of at least 0.3 or above. And that's what then correlated with showing people having higher alertness levels 
and uh, generally in better moods and sleeping better at night. Get out of here. And, and those, those questions I mean, were that's so by... incredible. Hang on a second. Like, that is so yeah, yeah. incredible, actually. Like, what the state is. It can be that simple. Like, the statement you just made is incredible. Like, that's. That could be the greatest discovery in the last 50 years. I don't know, antibiotics and this lights thing. You know what I mean? It's it, That's an incredible, incredible statement that you've observed that. And you know that to be a, a, a fact. You don't. Maybe you need to know more about why. I mean, we need to continue to learn. But that's really, really incredible, Greg Eric. It is. And, and I guess what I was going to ask is, is how, do, how again do you know that? It's just a, somebody saying... Yeah, I slept eight hours last night, and I usually sleep seven. Is it? It was just a matter of surveying. Is that right? They were surveying. There were definitely questions that were asking. You know, how when did you fall asleep? How long did you fall, take to fall asleep? How many caffeinated drinks did you have, etc. But one of the interesting things about the dosimeter, which I was talking about earlier, the the light meter, was that at night, um, people would take it off their chest and actually put it on their wrist. It has an accelerometer in there, and it shows movement. So we could actually figure out if someone would actually put it on their wrist and sleep with it. We could figure out during the night when they were stopping moving. And we could calculate from that stop point to the start point the next day and figure out, you know, what the uh, what the movement was. So that helped us figure out um, sleep latency, you know, how long somebody went to bed, how long it took them to fall asleep and then sleep duration, how long, you know, they stopped moving. And then when they woke up, the surveys themselves really help us. Um, figure out, you know, did somebody feel, you know, when they woke up, are they really tired? Did they feel more tired or did they feel well rested? Um, so you get some of the qualitative responses from the surveys, but then the quantitative information is really very useful and really valuable for us by the looking, using the data from the decimeter. And then uh, if you, you mentioned add you, to that, oh, go ahead yeah. if, if you add to that the, the wealth of knowledge that we have scientifically of what's actually happening in the body, uh, pharmacologically, from if I, I'm going to open up with the idea that light is a pharmacological um, instance uh, for the human biology, and you start to correlate what's happening to the melatonin uh, ex expression and suppression, uh, and you do that with light, we now understand what's actually happening with what Brian was just talking about. And if you if you expand that that core that Brian was talking about out to out to the you know the, the wealth of knowledge. Uh, a lot of that is is brought all together in UL's document, UL 24480, Design Guideline for Circadian Entrainment with Light for Day Active People. And and it starts to it starts to uh, bring together uh, a, a, a nucleus of understanding so that we can actually start to impact people's lives with how we do lighting. And something as simple as a desk lamp um, changing changing somebody's biology, changing the way that they changing their health while it was while it was interesting and important before the pandemic imagine now how we might see that as a way to strengthen our immune systems so that when as we're dealing with the current pandemic we have we have um we have some options to consider now brian you mentioned the these desk lamps you built in-house i need to know more about that what did it look like what color was it what output is it dim give us a whole breakdown Sure. Um, so we we built, uh, they were used LED strips. Um, I don't know the output themselves, but uh, we were able to calibrate them to deliver a 0.3 CS. Um, early on, they were, it was just one single strip that was more or less on one of those uh, theatrical um, mic stands that would adjust so we could, <laughs> uh, they, they weren't fashionable. It wouldn't be sold in, uh, maybe somebody that was really into industrial um you know, design or whatever, but uh, they, they were just fit behind the, the desk themselves. Uh, and it was just a white LED strip. In our later phases of our of our work, the Lighting Research Center built some additional um, uh, lights that um, had three um, LED strips in them, and either they were white or they were blue. Both were calibrated to have a deliver a 0.3 um, circadian stimulus. These are ones that were actually deployed um, to the embassies over in Northern Europe. And the interesting thing was, especially uh, in Iceland, we were there in December a few years ago. And like I mentioned before, four hours of daylight a day, 
the people there, um, and I will say um, the white light was really bright, um, too bright for me. They were all drawn toward it. They wanted it. They put it in their offices, um, and it worked for them. Um, the people um, in the other embassy were more on the, the bluish light, which was not as intense. It's very uh, user-friendly. Um, with those were placed typically below the desk, kind of tilted up looking um, at the eye. Um, and then later on, uh, for another uh, phase of the work, these same kind of desk lamps um, had a light engine in them that were able to make uh, sort of a, a bluish light in the morning. And then automatically as the day went on, it would shift down to a reddish light. And that was really just to get a sense of what a dynamic light system would be, um, how red light in the afternoon would really impact somebody from an alertness standpoint or from just ensuring that we're not disrupting their circadian rhythm, you know, later in the day. And you guys have mentioned the circadian stimulus. How do you calculate 0.3 and how do you calibrate 0.3? I assume if you calibrate, it depends on the location. It is on the desk. So break that down for us. I was just going to say, um, you know, from a, a, a way to do it, an easier way to do it, the Lighting Research Center has published a circadian stimulus calculator. So all you would have to figure out is how much light output there is, what the type of light there is, and then it'll do the math for you. So if you want to get a 0.3 CS, you can kind of reverse engineer that once you have the type of light that you're using, and it'll tell you how many, um, how much illuminance you would need in order to ensure that you're delivering a 0.3 CS. That's probably the easiest way to do it without using other uh, lighting designer tools that you may or may not have available. And, and measuring it where, again, maybe you've kind of answered, but measuring it, like if I do it in front of my desk right now and I want 0.3, is it light meter on the desk? Is it facing my computer? Is it facing, where is it at? How do I get 0.3? It's actually facing your eye, facing forward, because you're looking, making sure the light's coming at your eyeball. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Whew. Okay. So, um, <laughs> is it gonna, we're going to start another lighting boom. Um, so, Adam, uh, I want to ask you, if maybe we don't want, um, we don't want to go too far down these kinds of roads in 2020, but I have to ask, have you guys noticed that people whose ethnic heritage is from lower latitudes, as opposed to, say, the Sami in Finland, uh, you know, high latitude people, is there a difference in their reaction to this saying that, hey, people who, you know, who are accustomed or maybe their ancestors have lived in, in, in very uh, near the equator where there's a lot more sunlight throughout the year and those whose ancestors are from, you know, northern Sweden or whatever would respond differently? Is there any evidence about that, that different, different people have different needs? Absolutely. And fortunately, the, um, the expert in that area is Mariana Figuera. Mm -hmm. Uh, she's uh, been the director of the Lighting Research Center, and you've probably been following the news. She's uh, moving uh, to Mount Sinai uh, uh, right as we speak, um, and and she's uh, published uh, quite a few papers on this. In fact, I can refer you to if you if you were to um, Google uh, Mariana Figuera, and I think it's F I G U E I R O, um, and her TED talk. Um, she has a great TED talk that also addresses this. Hmm. Okay. So the answer is yes. Yes. Okay. Um, next point, I kind of want to take it sort of uh, maybe more into to, to Brian's world, but also uh, you guys have heard of the 330-300, right? That, 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 uh, that acronym, you know, 3% you know, at whatever it is, right? Describing, you know, if you can actually impact human. In the age of pandemic viruses and that, I think we've inverted that curve. So the most important thing, Brian, is to get people back into the built environment, right? So forget about the energy savings, you know, forget about the lease costs or the rent or the energy. People are just aren't in buildings anymore. And do you see this as a conduit to bringing people back into the built space? Uh, do I see lighting as a conduit? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely one of those things that... Um, you know, I, it, getting people back into the buildings is going to be a very interesting question, especially of when, uh, when that might happen. I think lighting can definitely be a way to show people that uh, being at work is helpful, uh, especially uh, light that's affecting your circadian rhythm. But um, 
you know, again, it's there's just a lot of considerations that need to take place, um, you know, for all that to happen. I think light is extremely valuable with UVC, UVC, sorry, UVC and just the germicidal lighting that is being, I think, used more now with uh, cleaning spaces. Um, but I think uh, the biggest question that I see is, you know, we've been moving um, from individual offices, you know, now to open offices. Oh, we and, and with that, we we've, we've been seeing you know more lighting coming into the space, more dynamic lighting systems. Is COVID really going to be something that kind of then reverses that? And instead of open offices where people are exposed to a lot of other people in an area, is is it going to be moving back to individual offices? I don't know. Um, and I think that's a question that you know GSA is. Uh, contemplating on, you know, getting people back to work safely, of course, um, in office buildings, but to do it in a way that, um, you know, can sort of shelter people from viral interactions um, and is open office space really the way to do that? It's, it's a, it's a, it'll be interesting to see what happens in uh, the end of this year and early 2021 when people start to, you know, to really move back to commercial office spaces. Before we move to UVC, which is something I, I, I want to talk, I want to ask Adam a little bit about in a second, because I'm on the fence with it from both the surface disinfection. Primarily, I'm on the fence with that. Upper air disinfection seems like a very good idea. Um, but uh, before we get into that, color tuning. Uh, I think we missed it, Greg. We haven't talked about color tuning yet with, with Adam. Is there an impact? Have you guys, you've seen the light? Yes, yeah, so you get enough light at this and less at night and you're good to go. Um, but what about the color tuning? Is there a value to someone getting 2200 Kelvin at seven in the morning, say, and then hitting a peak of 65 in the afternoon and then slowly setting that sun, so to speak? Is there value in that or is that just uh, sizzle? There's a couple of different ways to look at that. One is um, what do people like and what's their preference? Um, and do they feel better about it? Uh, let's set that aside for a second. Let's talk more uh, scientifically. Um, yes, it's more efficient, but no, it's not required. So one of the one of the challenges that we have is that when you look at, for example, uh, LED penetration in indoor spaces, and we and we look at that just a few years ago, we're all the way up to eight to ten percent penetration of LED uh, in indoor spaces, and and we've we've clearly you know, doubled that, um, but let's say let's even let's even say we've tripled that. Um, uh, let's be let's be really liberal, and say okay, seventy percent of our indoor spaces are still lit with non-LED uh, uh, products. So if we're going to wait until until a, a, a color tuning uh, control system. Uh, can deliver what we're talking about. We've got decades to wait, right? Mm. Um, so, so I think it's, I think it's fundamental to understand that you can, you can deliver circadian stimulus of zero point three and higher with an old fluorescent system. You don't. It's it's more important. Good news is volume is more important than than spectrum. Um, Saying that, when you do do the calculation of the circadian stimulus using the the free calculator at LRC, you are plugging in the spectral power distribution, um, and that's that curve that has the the oranges and the yellows and the greens and the purples and the reds under it that tell you what volume at what nanometer. Mm. Interestingly, um, hang on, that's a, a published document. That's a published document. They can the many in, in almost all. Um, spec sheets for a luminaire, um, you'll you'll have the opportunity to see the spectral power distribution. So many many manufacturers publish it, many haven't, and in fact, many manufacturers um, don't know where their spectral power distribution file is. Uh, we've been working with a couple of manufacturers who who are on the advanced stages of, and know, and they've collected over fourteen hundred of their spectral power distributions and have tied them to their to their luminaires and they're ready when the industry is is asking for them they're, they'll they'll be ready to supply the spectral power distribution that is critical especially because the cct of a 5000 kelvin light uh, uh, a cct of 5000 isn't going to perform the same as another uh, light with 5000 in fact there are some 2700 kelvin lights that are more effective at delivering a circadian stimulus of 0.3 than a 5,000. 
Mm-hmm. And so the spectral power distribution is, is the combination of all of the nanometers underneath the curve. And, and that's, that's going to that's gonna be a major shift uh, in the industry is, is connecting the, the SPDs of our luminaires uh, to, in order to be able to calculate this easier. I'm going to go over to Greg, but one second before I do. Um, I'm going to push back on the decades, you said. I think if you're actually able, if we're able to get some momentum into the industry and then mm-hmm. through into the general population that you can actually improve people's quality of sleep. I mean, there's a guy selling millions of pillows. I mean, he's out there going crazy with pillows up in Minnesota. I think his factory's there. And he's talking about improving your sleep. He's selling on sleep. Uh, mattress exactly. companies sell on sleep. I mean, and, and that's all sizzle. That's all sizzle. There's no okay. proof that that pillow actually, sorry, my pillow. I mean, I, I, I mean, I don't have one, but I bought one for friends as a joke. But I mean, the, <laughs> but I mean, like that's marketing. Okay. So we need to get the marketing caught up here. Like the, the marketing and the training of nail distributors and contractors, people over at Nalmco and the IES, then we need to get this training out there so that, uh, people can do this. I, I, I think it will happen very quickly if it's becomes very hardcore, uh, Greg, don't you, do you agree with me? Yeah. Yeah. If, if we get to a point, yeah, I think it could for sure. I love that. Um, let, me pose, let me pose yeah. the situation. So, so I think the, the work that Brian and GSA are, are doing is, is critical in this part of the conversation. Imagine, whether it's 2021, 22, 23, imagine that they go out with an RFP, a request for proposal, and it's to the, it's to the industry. And they say, we're going to update this federal building, and, and it has to hit a, a circadian stimulus of 0.3. And if you don't, if you don't submit a design proposal that reaches that, justify why you think it's, you know, your proposal should be looked at when it's a requirement. Um, all of a sudden, you've got the manufacturers going, wait, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good um, project. I want to sell my product. You have the, the lighting uh, design firm saying, hmm, how do I know how to deliver this? And, and what are my plans? You have the distributor saying, geez, what's in my line card that will deliver a 0.3? And, and all of a sudden, everybody's in the field trying to figure out how to do this. We're getting out ahead of that, and we're offering education. Uh, Brian and I did a, um, a lighting, an LED, LEDs magazine, uh, Renaissance of Light um, uh, webinar uh, about a month ago, I think. And in that webinar, we cover not only what GSA is doing in their in their field studies and how they've advanced the science, but we also go through very specifically what are the six steps in in the uh, UL two four four eight zero design guideline process, and we we literally put up on the screen step one, and we have a diagram. We say this is what you have to do. Step two, this is what you have to do. Step three, this is what you have to do. So we're 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 putting out there what needs to happen for the lighting uh, design groups. We're also at the end of that webinar commenting that lighting manufacturers need to be prepared to share their SPDs, their spectral power distributions, and the EV to EH, or the energy vertical to the energy horizontal of their luminaires, because as we, as we know we've taken care of the horizontal, we need to take care of the vertical, it's the, it's the ratio. If I have a downlight that has, a, that has a, 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 a distribution that's like this, and I can get my and I can get my distribution to be more like this. Then I'm going to hit the eye uh, better with that ratio. And that type of thinking is what needs to make, needs to take place. And it's not a it's not a very big leap. It's not a it's not it's not rocket science. Um, and 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 so the in the past where where the lighting um, industry used to say the science is fuzzy, we don't know enough, we have to become we have to become more expert. We don't. We know enough. We can hit this baseline of 0.3 in a circadian stimulus, or the International Well Building Standard um, has a very similar uh, uh, approach to it. It just happens to use Melanops and Lux. And because of comments that we received during the open discussion period, um, we actually changed the, the task force, changed the, the UL24480 document to accommodate mm-hmm. um, the well building uh, standard. And, and the well building standard has updated. The requirements and they now accept the the circadian stimulus of 0.3 as a as as a 
is a requirement meeting number in order to hit the well building circadian requirement. So it's happening. You mentioned that you can do this with old fluorescent systems. How do you do yeah. that? You have to add fixtures. Is that what you do to, um, to well, make sure you hit it? Or uh, in a in a way, if you think of if you think of the earlier um, part of when I was talking about, you know, the, is the light overhead gonna you know gonna hit my eyeball with my forehead? Um, the easiest way to to go into an, a 1970s classroom is considered the reflect perhaps is considered the reflectivity of the wall, the wall washers, uh, desk lamps. Uh, so sometimes the solution will will be a, a little bit non-obvious, uh, but we're talking about, uh, and this is something the lighting designers are, are are you know they're they're made for is layers of light, and and the and if you've got a if you haven't you know I think most classrooms have a white wall anyhow, so you're you're part way there, but in the hands of a lighting designer, you can you can um, you can look at adding layers of light to achieve the results. No, I know I've, I've pushed this maybe too far and continue to ask, but I want to know right now in my office what my CS is. How exactly do I do that? Is that a document we got to research through and computerize it, or can I do measurements right here, right now that tell me what I have? Well, it's, it depends on um, on what you have uh, to measure. Uh, one thing that uh, that we've been working with is uh, the lighting metrology companies. Um, so there is a, a, a light meter that um, will use my, my smartphone as the microprocessor, and I can add the light meter to it, and I can now hit a button on that light meter, and I can hold it approximately eye level, and I can look around the room, and as I look towards the window, I might see that I have a, a CS of, of 0.5 or 6 or 7. If I look towards the interior of the room, and I'm just I'm hoping for reflectivity, off of walls, I might get a, a, a 0 0.18 or 2, 0.2. Um, not, not for you as a consumer is this important, but let's say you were a lighting designer and you're going into a meeting with your customer and your customer was saying, was saying, How, you know, explain this thing to me. How, I can, I can, I can make an option. I can give it as a, as a, as an option to, to the person who's about to lease the product. They can either put a fancier carpet on the floor or they can get better lighting, um, but how do how do we measure this? And the lighting designer pulls out their light meter, and they describe this. They say, "As I'm looking at the light here, here it's changing, and and you're going to hire me if you do. You're going to hire me to to take care of the light, internal lighting uh, inside the room, um, and knowing where the desks are, we might actually shift the the desks to be facing the window, um, whereas in the past people, you know, people." make their decisions on, on what they knew before and glare and and other things that, that we could talk about. But in the hands of the lighting designer, this tool, um, an inexpensive light meter, it's a $2,000 uh, attachment um, to a smartphone. Otherwise, it's a $10,000 device if, if it's got its own microprocessor. So we're also working to figure out how to make this easier for the lighting industry. <laughs> What's that thing called? This $2,000, $10,000 item? I'm not going to buy it, but... <laughs> It, it happens to be happens to be this one. This one I'm talking about in, in particular is happened to be off, offered by um, Ocean. Uh, they used to be called Ocean Optics. Now they're called Ocean Insights. Insights. Okay. okay. And it's the it's the WaveGo. It's the WaveGo light meter. And in, interestingly, there's a lot of these WaveGo light meters out in the marketplace. So when they actually roll this out, it'll be a software upgrade. So they can you can take the exact same device you have because what it's doing is it's incorporating the math. Uh, that is available today um, on the on the Lighting Research Center free calculator, which, by the way, um, is open architecture. It's 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 uh, it's shared publicly. You don't you don't have to go uh, in, in in the future. You won't have to go to the Lighting Research Center website to use it. They're offering this freely to all manufacturers. So light meter companies also play a big role in this. Yeah, and I'll say just to tag on to that because Adam, that's. I learned something today because I didn't know about that light meter. We, we've been using a different one from a different company that offers the same kind of metrics. So I think the point is, is that these measurements, the equivalent monopic lux and circadian stimulus are fairly new, um, but it's these are measures of circadian lighting that are appearing more and more in the marketplace in meters. So being able to measure this is becoming more and more accessible, I think, each year. Hmm. 
Sure. I want to ask a little bit about UVC. I want to start with uh, you, Greg. Can I move on? Can we exchange gears here? You can move on. All I know. Right. What, I know what to do now. Buy that thing and look and around. <laughs> um, okay, that's fa- by the way. This is incredible and fascinating. Yeah. And uh, we're just at the beginning. And I love sitting on the nose cone of a rocket before it takes off. Yeah. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> the UVC situation. Okay. So nailed has done a lot of uh, education and work in the UVC, understanding UVC. It's a dangerous technology, okay? We gotta be careful with it. It's what the ozone layer blocks, right? So when people say there's a problem with the ozone layer, they're talking about allowing UVC light from the sun to come to earth and it will kill everything. So we have to be careful when it's deployed. Um, And we, we did some trial lead generation where Greg and I spoke to people and user customers about UVC to see you know, can this be actually be a play for lighting distributors and how can we help and so on and so forth. And what I discovered is that uh, most people have no idea uh, how this works. They think it's like magic. Okay. When you talk to them, it's like, oh, I put a UVC light and then everything's disinfected. And they confuse the word sanitation and disinfection. Uh, you know, they confuse those words. You can sanitize and disinfect with a powerful cleaner, but a light fixture is not going to sanitize anything. It's only going to disinfect the clean surface. So you have these different misunderstandings. To me, Brian, it breaks out into you have, uh, you should be, you, you should in a major building be disinfecting the forced air in from your, from your ducts. Like that's number one thing to do right? Because those things are filthy. And I have a recycling company. And one of the things we recycle is furnace filters from commercial buildings. Absolutely disgusting. It's hazardous waste, actually. Like if you, it, it actually should be classified as hazardous waste. Um, they're not, but it is. Uh, the second thing is, so you want to be, you know, a lot of people actually already have UV systems in their f- f- um, furnaces that they, they they forgot to change the bulb for 10 years. Like they're there. They're already deployed in the field. So saying that, I'd say, you know, do you have that? So investigate that first, Mr. Customer, and see if you have UVC lighting in your forest air. The second thing is I think what we know for sure, Adam and Brian, is that passive uh, upper air disinfection where the fixtures are reversed and shining on the ceiling above human height is a very effective in tuberculosis wards. And in places, we've done it since the 70s. They've been using this technology. Um, first of all, is is the GSA considering um, upper air disinfection with UVC as a possible way to bring people back to the space? Yeah, I mean, this is um, an area that I know there's lots of discussion on GSA participates on a lot of different um, standard bodies that are tackling this issue. National Academies of Sciences is also looking at this. Um, we, we have UVC um, really in our, in our forced air, really looking at, um, at the coils. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of putting it into buildings, I mean, right now we're, we're really just trying to get our hands around exactly what we need to do. Um, to to get people in safely, right? Um, I will say that uh, you know, there's I think ASHRAE has put out several documents looking at UVC, um, and uh, you know, for upper air, I think that's something that GSA is considering. Um, unfortunately, I'm sort of away from that aspect of the business, so I can't really say for sure. Uh, I do know that people are definitely talking about it. Um, there's been lots of discussion within the federal government from all different types of agencies trying to get clarity on exactly, you know, what we really should be doing um, for our buildings, and our building systems. So I think that's still kind of a question that we're still trying to figure out. Adam, do you have any, do you have any thoughts on, on the order of operations here? Because uh, I'm very leery of surface disinfection in the general environment. We had the situation in China where they blinded the kids um, with that device that they, they left on in the, in the room. Um, you have very, very new research about certain nanometer wavelengths that are, in, I'm doing quotations for the listeners here, that are safe for humans. Um, and we know you're learning how much light impacts our health and wellness. Are we going to be doing it negative here with the, the, the surface by shining these nanometers on people? Do you have any thoughts to the order and whether certain or whether surface is actually viable as a mass deployment into 
office buildings where, where people that are unaware of it are going to be working or going to school or whatever. And, and, and then of course, some thoughts on, on passive upper air disinfection, if you have any. Yeah. Let me take a step back for a second and talk about um, where we've been with, with COVID-19 and what we've learned. So it wasn't more than a few months ago that um, I'd, I'd uh, very carefully go to the supermarket and uh, and select you know a couple of items that were uh, that were used up in the last week, and I bring them home, and I park my car in the driveway, and I put these device these items on the on the garage floor, and I get my ten percent solution of bleach, which I learned pretty quickly you can only have the ten percent solution of bleach active for for twenty four hours before it starts to degrade. So I go and I I I uh, mix a new a batch, and I'd spray the stuff down. And, and I'd wait more than half an hour before I brought it into the house. And that's because that's what we thought was spreading the virus at the time. And we were not wearing masks. Um, and and we, we thought it was a, a, a surface to hand to, to eyes, ears, nose and mouth type of uh, spread. What we've learned so far is that it seems to be uh, much more that if the four of us were sitting in a, at a restaurant, uh, we're, we're projecting our, we're aspirating, um, the virus and it's floating around the air and then we're breathing it in. And depending on how much you breathe in determines whether you catch it and how severe it is. So, so the surface disinfection a few months ago, absolutely. Uh, air disinfection today, absolutely. Who I, I presume will still be there in a few months. And then when I look at the breakdown of where we can use UVC, um, indoors, uh, it's the two major distinctions. Um, uh, one distinction, the third distinction, I, I discount automatically, which is taking a wand and moving it around. It's too dangerous. It's uncontained. U, uh, UL's published a paper with with NEMA and American Lighting Association, and you can find that on the UL website. And it's it's a it's a warning to consumers: do not go out and buy these devices thinking you're you're doing yourself a favor. Um, on the other hand, indoors. There's two ways we can we can look at UVC and the indoor environment. One is inside the air duct, and and some experts have said that if if the four of us are sitting around um, in the same space, and we're we're counting on the air duct and the UVC lights, uh, typically at the coils, uh, to take care of the of the spread of virus between the the four of us, we're already too late. By the time it gets to the intake um, on the on the air duct. You, we've, we've already caught it or we haven't, or we're, we're being impacted by it. Let's say for the moment though, that, that the air duct and reducing uh, the, you know, the virus and or bacteria or any living organism that might be growing on the, on the wet ducts uh, is definitely gonna impact our health. Um, and so, and so that's, that's has always been and will always be um, a, a consideration. For COVID today, and, and trying to take care of the air to deactivate a virus that might be in the air seven feet and above with a, a louvered uh, UVC device that's either hanging in the center of the room on a pendant or is on a, is on a wall, but they have louvers to control the spread of the light mm -hmm. um, to deactivate uh, the virus um, and to take care of how the air is flowing amongst the four of us and amongst the table next to us and the table over there. if. If, uh, if, if we're talking to a, uh, a competent um, engineering firm uh, that, that's no doubt these days, uh, also working with the manufacturer of the device, because that's where a lot of this resonant knowledge is. We've talked about in, in previous podcasts, you know, who's, who's in charge of this? Uh, it turns out that the, that, the, that the manufacturers have to play a very large role. Their PhD scientists are involved in, the, in, in working with uh, uh, perhaps the MEP firm the engineering firm on the on the installation, but they're they're talking about things like airflow. They're talking about um, uh, uh, amount of irradiance and at what level, and they're talking about the 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 dosage of the UVC light, which is a combination of the energy output. Closer to a, a UVC lamp, you've got a high output. Further away, you have less. Uh, but if, with the number of air exchanges, uh, if you have seven air exchanges and the and the virus keeps on hitting. Uh, a, a lesser amount of radiation is still going to deactivate. Yeah, sure. And then there are, there's a couple of, um, of studies that have recently come out that are talking about the uh, the dosage in the in the uh, 2.6 um, 
uh, you um, the measurement for for um, effective irradiance is often in um, micro uh, microjoules per centimeter squared. Yeah, or, or meter squared. I think it's something point three or something per meter squared. I have a catalog out there from the from the eighties. Okay, yeah. it's from the eighties, exactly. and it gives you so, and all the math on how to do it. And and we've actually known quite a bit about this since the 1930s when the studies done by Wells and Wells in the Friends uh, Quaker schools in Philadelphia, where they showed a three to five X reduction in um, in the spread of tuberculosis back then. Mm -hmm. And there have been there have been papers back and forth that have disputed that and 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 and, and brought it forward and said it's, it was accurate. But we've we've done a lot more studies now, um, and and we need some more. Uh, we need we need more studies, but one of the things that's not understood so far is when you put one of these devices in a in a room, um, how much does it does it deactivate? Is an eighty percent deactivation sufficient to start to see? A, it's a impossible to know that because all the rooms are going to have different air circulation. Like like the air is swimming around us. So I'm sitting in this room here. You're sitting in that room. That air is constantly moving and cycling through the room. But the problem with the upper air disinfection, and this is what we've learned, is that you can't prescribe any amount. When you talk to the UVC guys, they talk about water. So you have this much flow of water through this thick of a pipe at this rate with this much UVC, and the water is disinfected 100%. We know that. But the problem with different deploying this in the built environment is that Brian has two rooms may look identical, but they may have totally different airflow dynamics in them. And so the rate of disinfection is going to be lower or higher or uh, based on the height of the ceiling, the size, how many people are in the space. Uh, is it winter? Is it summer? Is there AC blowing? Is there a window open? You know, there's a whole, the, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? The, there's no way to control it in a sense. Now they know that if you do this with point, whatever it is, point three per meters cubed or what watts of UVC energy per meter cubed or whatever the heck it is, will will do something. It will do something, but it's not a foolproof idea. But it's certainly the I think the safest and most effective way to deploy UVC light if people are going to do it, Brian. The good news is that there's is that the science is is starting to resolve around this, uh, especially with the focus and the grants. Um, you think of you think of um, the study of airflow in a room. Um, that's, we've done that for for ages. You think of um, HVAC uh, engineers, and and you you and then and then you look to where in the world uh, this is really really well known. You take somebody like Clive Beggs, a PhD scientist at Leeds in uh, in the UK. He happens to be. Uh, probably the only one of them in the world. He happens to be a PhD scientist in fluid engineering, and happens to be a PhD scientist in vir virology. Um, and so he he looked at all of the past publications of of uh, of UV and um, and uh, irradiation and disinfection and deactivation, and he did an analysis of that. Not not because it was going to answer a question, but it was going to it was going to it was going to bring us to a baseline. Um, and so, and so, this the science is advancing, and and is, if if this were a six month, um, you know, uh, pandemic, um, I, I don't think I, I don't think we would have uh, given it enough time to resolve the answers. I'm afraid that we're going to have plenty of time uh, to resolve the answers, and the science is is moving quickly now. How active is UL in, in this? Are they taking a stance and saying, you know, you have to do it a certain way, or are you guys not really getting into UVC lighting? Uh, we're very deeply into UVC lighting, and, I think. Um, yeah. and 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 again, we're an independent third party, uh, so we don't pick we don't pick winners. We're very we're very careful uh, to help advance, as we have for 126 years. Our our job is to is but to, nobody's uh, bragging about that 126 years. <laughs> <laughs> Not bragging at all. <laughs> it's a minute. <laughs> you can certainly find companies that have been doing it longer, um, but we we have a we have a since we've been doing it so long we we we're, we're pretty set in our ways. Um, we look at science as a way of of helping societies advance their their ev the evolution and the adoption of new technologies because they know they're safe and they know that they're valid. Um, so we certainly we certainly see ourselves having a role 
in in UVC, but but from a very a, a very specific point of view as an independent third party. One more question, and we're coming up on the hour here. I'm sure you guys got people to talk to, but I want to steal. I think probably Adam. So uh, by the time this gets out, Nailed will have signed an agreement with the International Dark Sky Association. Okay. And we're going to be producing education and videos and technical data and all this sort of stuff in order to teach distributors about the five principles of responsible outdoor lighting and how to apply them in the field and then making the ethical case as to why we should do this. Um, is there a circadian play here, Adam, with it? Is, is, are people getting too many, whatever those singings are? I can't remember what they were, 0.3 or 0.1 from when they drive home in the dark and they're getting hit with that 5,000K light. They're at the Walmart parking lot. They're just getting smashed with massive amounts of lumens at night. Um, a lot of those wall packs are pointed out right at the eye, right? They're, they're glare bombs. Is there an impact there that we could look to to add to that uh, to the circadian thing, or is it is it off the table? If I had, if if you told me one word answer, I'd say no. Okay. Um, but let me let me let me go a little bit deeper. I was I remember being at probably about a year ago, maybe two years ago now, um, at a conference, and I heard from an LRC researcher who, as a result of the AMA uh, public published study that said that 5,000 Kelvin LED streetlights are causing cancer in, in nurses on the second and third shifts. And, and as a result, um, many municipalities around the, around the country stopped putting in LED lights for fear of being sued. Um, one of the researchers at LRC asked the question, well, how much light am I, am I able to get from a, a, you know, a light that's 30 feet up, a typical streetlight? And the way she described it, is she set up her apparatus almost as if she were standing underneath the light and looking straight up for two hours. Now, we're not going to do that as a human being, but you can do that with easily enough with, with measuring equipment. And what I, what I recall, which is anecdotal, of what, her, what she was saying is that, is that the, the, the staring up at a 5,000 Kelvin streetlight at that distance was not enough to, to change the melatonin uh, hmm. in the body. Interesting. Uh, so... So based on based on that, now there might be other studies that refute that. Um, uh, it's certainly just one one point of, of knowledge, but it, it put in the back of my mind that no, it's not a concern at this time. Uh, but but the you know the concept of, of of light pollution and and what it does for you know for everything from sea turtles uh, near the near the shores um, to, uh, to uh, I think one of the one of the biggest impacts is that I think we've lost touch of of being a speck in the universe. Yes, um, I, I remember, bingo. I remember. Yes, yeah. I remember totally being on Lake Ontario in a sailboat at nighttime on a clear night and just looking up and being unbelievably amazed. I'm getting mm -hmm. tingles as I speak about it, and 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 having a sense of the the billions of galaxies out there. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, this is a time when perhaps we, we need to return back to that. And I even fantasize about taking a trip to some, you know, finding a place on the planet with, that has clear skies and my wife and I taking a vacation and just, and, and renting a chaise lounge chair and looking up at the sky again. Ontario has several dark sky preserves. Um, so you can just come up north for a bit, but you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, we could probably talk, I'm very passionate about dark sky, but you know, what's interesting is that all these billionaires are trying to go to space, right? They want to go to space. I think we need to bring space back to us and we need to, to be able to see the stars. And I think there's, look, man, the, the, the great pyramid of Giza is aligned every 12,500 years to Orion's belt. Every 12,500 years, the, the Sphinx looks at the the Leo astrological, whatever it's called on a certain day of the year. Like we, we are just as aligned to the stars as the turtles and the birds and everything else. And to say that we're not, is just like talking about that. The obvious point that, Hey, we're not a nocturnal species, right? That's pretty like, like it's hard for humans to think that way, but we need to start thinking that we are aligned to this and this stuff does matter. But Brian Steverson and Adam Lee and hey Adam always always up with you and Brian thank you for sharing about the the GSA and what you guys are up to I really appreciate it. I think that the work that the thank GSA is doing is, is critically instrumental and I applaud uh, the work that you guys are doing and, and what you're contributing to our knowledge. Well, thank you. I appreciate Thanks, you guys having us on. Today. No, it's our pleasure. Bye for now. Thank you. It's get focused, buddy. It's time to get focused. What are you going to focus on? You're going to focus on 
energy focuses and focus human-centric lighting system. Now, oh, Colligan doesn't like the word human-centric. I don't think it works as a broad categorical label. But it does work for some applications, Greg Eric. And N-Focus is a human-centric, the lowest cost, most affordable human-centric lighting product out there. That's right. And it's uh, dimmable and color tuning right in the tube. Type B, use your existing fixture. And the other part that we don't stress enough with this is that it's low flicker. And that's across the entire dimming range, not just at the high level. As you dim it, it's not flickering. LEDs at dim right now or fluorescence at dim have flicker. Energy Focus said, you know what, in addition to doing all this other stuff it does, it's not going to flicker. Let's get it done right for you. So go to E-N-E-R-G-Y-F-O-C-U-S dot com. We're talking about N-Focus. And guess what, folks? There's an N-Focus switch right on the wall in the studio here. Why do I like it? I like it because people can come to my studio and adjust the lighting to the color temperature they want while they're recording. It's an amazing application. You start to think about the various applications, hair salons, Greg. Oh, I don't like the way my hair looks. Well, let's change the lighting level a little bit. Let's see, like, because this is actually a different color. This is one color for doing this. What if we change the color of the lighting? Oh, this Ooh, is. That looks nice now. Yeah. Our bald heads are shining. <laughs> oh, baby. Yeah. <laughs> but so, like, there's different applications that the industry has never really thought of yet. So you got to go to the original, the Flicker Free, the Energy Focus, E-N-E-R-G-Y-F-O-C-U-S dot com, the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. You know what, man? Got to get associated, Greg. It's the best organization to be a part of. If you're in the lighting industry, you want to advance and be better, be part of Nailed. Yeah, man, come on. And, of course, Adam Lillian and Brian Steverson. What a good time we had with them, Greg. Always interesting. Great topic. And for you out there, our colleagues that happen to listen to this podcast, we thank you as well. From the bottom of our hearts, lots of love's going out to you. Get a grip on lighting. Oh, we could, I don't really care if you like us or not, but I don't mind. So like us if you like us. See ya. Written on the rectory wall, there's a sign there for all. You are lost, Lord is there to find you.